So I want to talk about a problem that I'm going to set up first and then show you some examples of how people try to solve the problem in the second part of the presentation. So the, the basic problem is how are human free choice and divine grace compatible? And the idea is that we all naturally have the power of free choice, but if we have deeply ingrained habits, these habits cause us to choose in accord with our habits. So then the question arises, how can we break out of old habits and form new habits? And according to Augustine, this fourth century figure that I'm going to be talking about tonight, the answer to this is divine grace. And specifically he says that God has to give us two things if we're going to change our habits. First of all, the idea or the suggestion to change our lifestyle, and secondly, the effective decision to change our lifestyle. So obviously, especially with regard to the second item there, the question arises how we're free then, right? If we're going to improve, allegedly we need God's grace to give us the decision, but then how are we free? How, how are we exercising free choice? Okay, so I'm going to start from the basics and work my way up to this problem, and then we'll talk about solutions to the problem. How many people here have read The Confessions by Augustine? Okay, okay, um, <laughs> good. So this is not a complete review for everyone. Um, I won't read through all of the items, but these are the main events in his life that are described in the Confessions. Obviously here, the part that I bolded is the thing that's most relevant to the topic that we're going to talk about tonight. Okay, so Augustine describes in the Confessions how he underwent this dramatic shift in his lifestyle, his way of living. It's in Book 8 of the Confessions, and he thinks that this happened because of grace. Okay, so he then elaborates a theory of grace partly to explain what he thinks happened to him. Okay, so um, that's the first point here, right? Augustine thinks there's empirical evidence that some people, like himself, experience rapid and large-scale moral conversions. These occurrences are not fully explainable as a result of rehabituation or natural qualities in the person, according to him. He also thinks that there's empirical evidence that exceptionally virtuous people exist, like Socrates or Job. The existence of someone like Socrates, who was reputed to be morally superior to his own parents and to the entire surrounding society, is problematic. How did he get to be the way he was? Augustine's attempts to explain these facts cause him to formulate an account of prevenient grace as necessary for moral righteousness. And this account becomes the standard account in historical Christianity, with alternative positions being denounced as heresies specifically the heresies of Pelagianism and then what's called semi-Pelagianism. And this happens in the 5th century in the latter part of Augustine's life. He's involved in an extended controversy with Pelagius and followers of Pelagius. And then Augustine's position is written into church councils, so the Second Council of Orange, which is in the 6th century, and then the Council of Trent at the time of the Protestant Reformation. So Trent actually reiterates the main points from the Council of Orange about grace and justification and those points are taken directly from Augustine. All right, so I'm going to talk about the background to the problem. Um, Augustine is using an epistemology and a moral psychology that he synthesizes from Stoicism and Platonism. And I'm going to talk mainly about the Stoic items in that synthesis because those are the ones that are um, most relevant, although Platonism will be a little bit relevant as well. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what contemporary psychology says about habit formation, because there's some interesting correlations between what the ancients say 
about the importance of habits and what contemporary psychology says. So first of all, what is free choice, right? This is our central question is about free choice and um, grace. So what is free choice? And according to Augustine, using these ancient models, human beings are rational, meaning they're capable of concept formation, propositional thought, and assent or judgment. So when I say concept formation, what do you think of? What, what is concept formation? Does anyone want to hazard? I guess. <laughs> it's all right if you don't want to. Going once, going twice. Yeah. Yes. You know more about concepts. Just like learning, Forming concepts. Learning yeah. new ones. So What's that? Learning new ones, learning how to like distinguish new things in the world. Okay. Certain criteria. And what's a concept? It's a mental entity. Okay. That divides uh, things of some kind from things of other kind. Or okay. Okay, right. So the ability to recognize the type of thing that something is, right, we call it having a concept. So it's distinct from um, being cognitionally aware of particular items. Okay, if you're only aware of particulars, you're just aware of each individual chair in the room, but you're unable to say that all of these items belong to the class chair. If you can say all these items belong to the class chair, they're just multiple chairs, then you have a concept. Okay, so in grammar, a concept corresponds to a common noun as opposed to a proper noun, right? So to understand the type of thing that something is, that's having a concept. In medieval philosophy, it's called universals, having a universal. And the idea is a concept is a mental entity, as he said, right? A concept is a class term, essentially, that covers an infinite number of particulars because any possible example of that type falls within that domain. And we call that a universal. Good. Okay, then propositional thought. Who wants to say what they think that might be? What is a proposition? Yes? It's an idea in which like, you're, there's kind of like a plan in action, or like you're proposing, you're putting forth um, a notion that perhaps unites different concepts. Okay, you're putting forth a notion that unites different concepts, yes. So a proposition is a, what we would call a mental sentence maybe, right? It's a, an assertion. So if I say the cat is on the mat or the chair is on the rug, this is a proposition. And as she said, a proposition is uniting concepts and making a statement about the relationship between concepts, between things. And then assent or judgment is with my mind, I'm capable of saying, yes, that proposition is true or no, it's false. So if someone says to me, it's raining outside, that's a proposition. In order to formulate that, they have to have the concept of rain. They have to know what outside means as opposed to inside. And I hear that proposition, and then I can either agree or disagree, right? So if I agree, I'm assenting. I'm saying, yes, that's true. If I disagree, I'm saying, no, I'm refusing to assent to that proposition. Okay, so free choice is assent to the proposition that's contained in what's called a motivating impression, according to the Stoics and according to Augustine. So what do we mean by a motivating impression? First of all, I want to explain what an impression is the genus, and then I'll explain the species, motivating impression. So an impression is the initial perception of a thing or event. It's passively received and not directly under our control. Humans, unlike other animals, formulate propositions with their impressions, and unlike animals, they can assent to or refuse assent to the impression or the proposition. So for example, when I look at the sun, my impression is that the sun is one inch across, but I don't assent to that proposition, right? Because I can judge that it appears that way, but that's not really how it is, okay? And this is what it means to be rational. 
to be able to interpret the world and to critique appearances. Okay? And the claim is that animals don't do this and humans do. And this is the reason why we have free choice. So free choice, as I said, is assent to the proposition contained in a motivating impression. A motivating impression is a certain type of impression. It presents an action as worth doing because it will contribute to happiness. So for example, I should eat that piece of cake. Okay. Um, so it's different from what we call a merely epistemic impression because I'm perceiving something to be appetible, to be worth going after, and then I'm perceiving action in pursuit of that thing as worth doing. And this is why it's called a motivating impression, because it's about doing something to get something, right? Um, or it can be an aversion. It can be about taking action to get away from something that will make me unhappy, I believe, right? Great, and then again, we can assent or not assent. So if we're, we're gonna be talking about theology a little bit later in this presentation, a term that some people may know from theological context would be the term temptation. Temptation, according to Augustine, is a motivating impression to do something that's wrong. And then you have the ability to say yes or no, I'm going to assent or not to that motivating impression. Everyone with me? Any questions? Okay, so now it's gonna get a little bit more complex because the ancients, and particularly we're talking about the Stoics, but before the Stoics, Plato and Aristotle emphasized this as well. Um, the Stoics emphasized that habits influence moral perception. Obviously, if I have a habit of lying around and watching movies every night, then when someone suggests that I go to the gym and work out, I will perceive going to the gym and working out as something that's not conducive to my happiness. I will not experience this suggestion as a motivating impression, or if I do, I still will not assent to the suggestion that I do it, right? I might see the attractiveness maybe somewhat. I might think, oh, that, that sounds admirable, but I won't be able to bring myself to say yes to it, right, because I have the habit. There are different degrees of habituation, and this terminology in the Latin comes from Cicero, and it's from Stoicism. So there are less severe diseases, there's more advanced sickness, and then there's habitual vice. These are degrees. So relatively shallow dispositions, such as sicknesses, influence or restrict one's perceptions to some limited degree, while the oldest and deepest habits make the resulting impressions practically impossible for the subject to question. And we all experience this, right? So someone who's just starting to get into the habit of drinking is inclined to drink more and more, but they can still see how drinking might not be in their interest. Right. But if someone's a deeply habituated alcoholic, that person believes that their happiness absolutely requires frequent alcohol. Okay, it's nice to have an ancient quote just illustrating this. So um, we have a quote from Seneca just explaining what, he's, what the context is. Um, he's claiming that someone with a hedonistic lifestyle will tend to perceive small inconveniences or difficulties as having great importance for his well-being, and thus easily become angered by them. He used the metaphor of the eyes being un unaccustomed to the light, which will later be used by Augustine and had earlier been used by Plato. Someone whom a slight breeze has made shiver is weak and sickly. Eyes that a white garment offends are not healthy. When pleasures have corrupted both body and mind, nothing seems bearable, not because things are hard, but because the person experiencing them is soft. And if you think back to Plato's Republic, which probably is a more familiar text for most people than Seneca, 
if you think about the um, allegory of the cave, right, when he's talking about people starting to break out of the cave and climb up, he says they experience pain of the eyes, and this is, this is part of trading false beliefs for true beliefs, and the reason why it's painful is because they're habituated. They're in the cave, they're used to living a certain way, and um, he calls it feasting and other pleasures. When they're down in the cave, they're living a sensual lifestyle, and the, the attempt to break out of that lifestyle is painful for the eyes, which means perception, right? It's hard for us to see why it's better to live the other way, because we're used to living in the old way. Okay, um, this is just some interesting data from contemporary psychology. On average, across the participants who provided enough data, it took 66 days until a habit was formed. As you might imagine, there was considerable variation in how long habits took to form, depending on what people tried to do. People who resolved to drink a glass of water after breakfast were up to a maximum automaticity after about 20 days, while those trying to eat a piece of fruit with lunch took at least twice as long to turn it into a habit. The exercise habit proved most tricky, with 50 sit-ups after morning coffee still not a habit after 84 days. Although the study covered only 84 days by extrapolating the curves, it turned out that some of the habits could have taken around 254 days to form. So it's very interesting how susceptible we are, I think, to um, once we have a habit, being unable to break out of it and form a contrary habit. Yes? Yeah. Okay. When I say like making a habit, um, uh-huh. like it took 66 days, so does that mean when people stop like thinking I have to drink a glass of water and just automatically do it? Or, like, yeah, so it's saying maximum that? automaticity, which means just it's like second nature, which is the definition of a habit. If you go back to like Aristotle, um, it's supposed to be something second nature that you don't have to. Um, that's the difference between what he calls a continent person and a habituated person. The continent person has to still talk themselves into doing the thing, and the habituated person just does it second nature. Okay, good. So let's apply this now to the situation of moral conversion, which is what we're really interested in. So moral virtues and vices are habits, according to Aristotle, according to the Stoics, according to Augustine. And changing from vice to virtue is a habit change, therefore. So... The other claim that these ancient authors want to make is that moral virtues really are good for us, right? They're really going to make us happy. Justice, moderation, courage, prudence make human beings happy. They make us thrive as rational social animals. But poor habituation will prevent us from seeing the virtues as good for us. So we will have a perception problem if we're poorly habituated. So how can a person with strong bad habits improve? Although we always retain the power of free choice, which is the power to give or refuse assent to our first impression, this power will inexorably be used by an addict to serve her habit. As Augustine puts it in the replies to Simplicianus, free choice is most important. It exists, indeed, but of what value is it in those who are sold under sin? Now, it gets a little more complicated because Augustine also thinks that this condition that he calls original sin, okay, which is an innate, inborn tendency in us to have certain motivations and attitudes, he thinks that this is actually a habit. Okay? It's, it's a disposition in the soul that's very deeply rooted. It's not a shallow disposition that can be easily changed. And he 
describes it in multiple texts as a habit that's thousands of years old. So it's, it's, a, it's ancient, it's a set of ancient desires, it's age-old evil habits, it's the most stable type of disposition. So the problem of how to recover from original sin for Augustine, the problem of how to recover from the fallen condition, is simply a specific form of the problem of how to recover from bad habituation. Now, he wants to assert that we cannot recover from the fallen condition just by rehabituation. And there are two reasons for this. First of all, there's a practical problem. The innate habit is universal, according to him, right? Because he thinks everyone inherited original sin. So everybody has this bad habit. So that means that all parenting and all governing is dysfunctional, morally corrupt and corrupting. So there's no way for children to be trained properly because you have an infinite regress. Who's going to rehabituate the first person to get them out of the fallen condition? In the second place, even if good parenting or governing were possible, the strength of the internal habit of the child, he thinks, is such that the child will fail to assimilate the reasons why he should do the right kinds of things. The habituation would have failed of its purpose as a moral rehabituation. So this is an important point. Um, As the last sentence says, in order to have a virtue, it's necessary to be acting from the right intention. So the way that the ancients talk about it, they say you have to be acting for the sake of the kalan, or in Cicero's terminology, the honestum, which means it's because it's the morally good thing to do. That has to be your motivation, as opposed to just doing it out of routine. Okay, so if somebody's habituated just with an external motivation, they may be doing things out of routine, or they may be doing them from a fear of punishment. If I don't do this, my mom will give me a spanking, or I'll get arrested, because it's illegal, right? Um, but that's not really a moral rehabituation. There's no moral change in the person then, right? So he thinks that the, the innate bad habit that we're born with is so strong that any attempt at external training will not penetrate to that core. I'm just emphasizing the point here. Um, so trying to make humans morally good through habituation alone would be like taking someone whose habit of gambling is thousands of years old and attempting to make her fiscally prudent. Such a person, so long as she is kept under force or influenced by some powerful deterrent, might gamble little or not at all, but she would abstain from gambling for the wrong reasons and likely turn to some other kind of high-risk, irresponsible behavior. Motivation would be external, not internal. So, I don't know how you feel at this point, but... (laughs) It seems to me it's a bit depressing and also puzzling, right? At the theoretical level, all this suggests a hopeless picture in which one's own innate confusion about the proper goal of action and the cumulative mistakes passed on through social customs and amplified through generations are simply overwhelming. Meanwhile, at the empirical level, the existence of someone like Socrates, who was reputed to be morally superior to his own parents and everyone else, is problematic. How did he get to be the way he was? We mentioned this problem earlier, right? Similarly, the existence of people like Augustine himself, who claimed to experience a rapid, large-scale, and lasting moral conversion, is problematic. How would this be possible? All right, so Augustine's answer to this question is, it was divinely given motivation. In other words, prevenient grace. Significant change from a state of orientation away from virtues to a state of orientation toward virtues indicates the presence of a supernatural cause, not a natural cause. 
God must, must be breathing motivation into the human mind as a gift when this happens. As he says, if those things delight us, which serve our advancement towards God, that is inspired and bestowed by the grace of God. So when he says grace has to be prevenient, what he means is we need to see virtue as attractive in order to be motivated to act well, but we can't see it this way owing to original sin and other bad habits. So a prevenient grace is a divinely given motivating impression of a good action. Prevenient means coming before, right? If you've taken Spanish, um, you know, veneer is to come and pre is before, and it's the same in Latin, so coming before. So the initiative comes from the side of God is the idea. Then he also wants to say that assent to that initial grace is also a gift from God. God not only gives us the idea or suggestion of acting well, but also the effective decision to change our lifestyle. You can see he's still using this two-step stoic epistemological model, right? You have the impression, and then you give assent or you don't. And he wants to say both things have to come from God in order for us to really change. And this takes us then to the core problem, right, which is what I mentioned right at the outset. How are we participating in this process then? So if we look at a couple of texts, we find some clues to how he thinks we can still be exercising free choice if God is converting us in this way. So in the Confessions, in Book 8, when you read it step by step very carefully, you actually see that there are three things that happen. So first of all, he, is, he does describe being given this appearance of continence or appearance of chastity where um, he says, you know, he says, I will now tell the story, Lord my God, of how you delivered me. And then he starts to describe how he heard a story about people who were living a sexually continent life. And he, for the first time, he felt very attracted to it. And the whole point of that is he was habituated to living an incontinent life. He was habituated in unchastity. So there's really no natural explanation for why he suddenly finds it so delightful to think about living without sex. Okay? It doesn't make any sense, given who he is, given his habits. So the idea is God gave him that. God gave him that impression of chastity as attractive, and it was supernatural. But then he says that he couldn't assent to it, right? that he's like too weak, and he describes how he's in turmoil, and he, he can't decide. And then he describes how he um, compares the state of his soul to the beautiful image of chastity that he just, you know, quote-unquote saw, and he sees how ugly he is, and then he does something. He invokes God, and he calls on God to help him. So in the Confessions, he puts into his own mouth words from the Psalms, but it's like, don't be angry with us forever, Lord, kind of thing. So he's asking, he says, like, how long, how long do I have to wait? In other words, he's asking God to help him move forward, to make a decision, and then um, the third thing that happens is he makes a decision. And this is the famous part um, where he hears pick up and read, and then he picks up the Bible, and he reads one line from the Bible, and in reading it, a decision happens inside of him. Right? And he decides to get baptized and live as a Christian. So the second step is not in the Stoic model, right? but it's something that he has now interspersed into the middle of the model. And this is the way that he's participating in the process when you read the confessions. 
So the idea is that we're too weak to decide for God or for virtue by ourselves, but we can perform this interior act of receptivity after God has first reached out to us. And so there's a kind of a dialogue that goes on. God gives us the first grace, then we have to like ask for more help, and then he gives us a second grace. So I'll read you one more example from his preaching. He's going to be talking about the same thing. This is going to be an elaborate metaphor, so everything is symbolic. Um, the earth is going to represent the human soul. The heavens dripping or raining down is going to represent grace coming down to water the earth or the soul. Growing weak is going to mean not rebelling against grace and invoking God. And then bringing forth fruit is going to be the decision to live a good lifestyle. So he says, the Lord will grant sweetness and our earth shall produce its fruit. Where would this fruit come from unless the Lord gave sweetness? You can see how our earth, that is to say our hearts, our souls, how our earth does not give its fruit unless God sends rain on it. The earth was moved. It was moved to bring forth, to give birth. So then the earth was moved, for indeed the heavens dripped from the face of God. It was moved by God, because it would not have been moved except by a voluntary rain. So then, setting apart, O God, a voluntary rain for your inheritance, and it grew weak. One who brings forth also grows weak. The earth, you see, was moved in order to bring forth, and it would not bring forth unless it first grew weak. You, however, have perfected it. What does grew weak mean? Did not rely on itself. What does grew weak mean? Hope for everything from you. Let it cry out, weak as it is, to the Lord, convert us, God of our healings. It understood it could not be perfected by itself. So if you know the three-step um, series from the Confessions, you can recognize the same elements here. All right, so now I want to move into, in the last four or five slides, I'm going to talk about the early modern debates that went on around the time of the Protestant Reformation regarding grace and free choice. So first of all, we have Luther and Calvin, and they rejected the idea that grace reconciled fallen humans to God by an interior renovation of being made just. So if you read them talking about justification, they will say things like, there's a cloak of righteousness that God puts on us that's exterior to us. Or they will say, it's like snow coming down it's snowing on top of dung. So we are dung, we're corrupt on the inside, and the snow is on the outside. So the only thing that changes with justification, according to them, is God sees us differently because the merits of Christ come in between us and God. So we're not changed on the inside. Obviously, it's quite different from what Augustine has been saying, right? Um, Luther also says that God does not require human beings to reciprocate God's gifts in order to continue receiving Christ and his benefits. So that's different from what we just saw where Augustine has this second grace from God coming in response to the person doing an invocation, right? Okay, then we have Jansen. Jansen's theory is God gives humans an overwhelming feeling of delight which irresistibly makes them want to become Christian and change their lifestyle to accord with Christian morality. Molina God gives human beings a very persuasive suggestion that they should become Christian, but when people decide to follow this suggestion, it is by their own power of free choice acting alone. And then finally, Banyas. God gives human beings an attractive suggestion that they should become Christian. In response, humans can either reject the idea immediately and refuse to think about it further or not reject it. If they do not reject it, then God rewards them with a second grace, the grace of decision. So here's a quiz. Which one of these people... Reminds you most of Augustine. Banyas, right? I would say Banyas. 
Okay. <laughs> All of these authors claim to be inspired by Augustine. So this is what's fun about um, studying the history of the reception of Augustine, because everyone's clamoring to be an Augustinian, but they're all saying contradictory things. So that's partly because Augustine is um, hard to figure out. So um, Luther and Calvin claimed, right, that they were going back to the patristic sources and they were saving Christianity from the corruptions of medieval scholasticism. Jansen, Molina, and Banyans were Catholics. Jansen wrote a book called Augustinus, which attempted to set out Augustine's theology of the fallen grace. And the Molina and Banyas represented the Jesuits and the Dominicans, respectively, in the De Auxilius Papal Commission. So this is a very famous episode in the history of the, the church in the West. What happened was because Molina and Banyas were, were debating publicly in towns, they were traveling around Europe debating, okay, in Spain and Italy. So um, it was starting to cause a scandal. So the Pope called a commission and it was to study the problem, and they had to debate in front of the Pope. But in 1607, he just called it off because he couldn't decide. It never came to a resolution. There was never any encyclical or anything issued about what the correct answer is because it was just inconclusive. Um, some of the parties to this debate about the relation between grace and free choice wrote commentaries on Aquinas, and they called themselves Thomas. But the debate dealt with questions that Aquinas did not explicitly address. Moreover, the prevailing assumption on both sides was that Aquinas and Augustine substantially agreed on the theory of grace. For these reasons, references to Augustine are not uncommon in the text of the controversy. If you've read Aquinas on grace, you'll see he basically is constantly quoting Augustine. So there isn't much there that's not already in Augustine. So they're right about that. Okay, so Banyas is closest, as we've already noticed. First of all, the Dominicans cite Augustine more than the Jesuit authors do. That's very noticeable if you're counting the references. And Banya shows a better understanding of the patristic mindset. So, for example, like Augustine, he claims that conversion is affected by God acting directly on the mind of the person. Banya calls this physical causality. Um, he doesn't mean that the soul is physical, like corporeal or material, but what he means is it's different from moral suasion. Molina is talking about what we would call moral suasion, like God gives you a suggestion and then you can respond on your own. And Banyas thinks, no, it's like God is directly acting on your soul to cause you to choose. Like Augustine, he claims that there are two graces, only the second of which is intrinsically efficacious. And he says it's possible to, re to resist the first grace, to reject the first grace. Thirdly, where Augustine speaks of becoming weak after the first grace of impression or invoking God as something different from assent to the impression, Banyas also says that after the first grace, we can not reject it without actually assenting to it. So if you think um, assent and refusal of assent are contraries, right? But not rejecting it is just the contradictory of of refusal of assent. And both Augustine and Banyas noticed that, that it's possible to do this third thing, which is neither to assent nor to refuse, but to kind of remain in limbo and kind of remain open to something else happening. And then finally, they agree, Augustine and Banyas agree on the notion of what free will is, what free choice is. That free choice is a power that's an instrument that's supposed to be used to choose the good, and it's not absolute good in itself. So this is part of their 
theology of what it is to be a creature. All the powers that we have um, are given to us to use to make us truly happy, right? And Molina wants to say that free choice is always capable of doing otherwise, even when it's being acted on by God. And this is completely foreign to Augustine and Banya's way of thinking. Like, it would not be possible for a creature to actually make it impossible for God to convert them, according to Augustine and Banya. It's like the distinction between creature and creator just makes that a ridiculous thing to say. But Molina wants to say that. So when you read Banyas and the other Dominicans, they will say Molina is a modernista. <laughs> He's a modernist because he doesn't have this kind of classical understanding of what free choice is that we find in Augustine. Okay, here's a quote from Banyas um, contrasting Molina with himself. Around this turns the entire difficulty and controversy between the preacher fathers, the Dominicans, and the fathers of the society, the Jesuits. Whether the same prevenient grace without another one added to it suffices for the consent of free choice and the conversion to God, or whether another aid is added by which the mind of man actually consents to God and is converted to him. Okay, the last thing I wanted to mention, this is the last slide, is what Aquinas actually says. We'll have a quote from Aquinas here. So he talks about operating grace, right? He asserts that something that he calls operative grace or operating grace exists. And this aligns with what Augustine and Banya say about the second grace. So grace is fittingly divided into operating and cooperating. In that effect in which our mind is moved and does not move, but in which God is the sole mover, the operation is attributed to God. And it is with reference to this that we speak of operating grace. But in that effect in which our mind both moves and is moved, the operation is not only attributed to God, but also to the soul. And it is with reference to this that we speak of cooperating grace. Now, there is a double act in us. First, there is the interior act of the will. And with regard to this act, the will is a thing moved and God is the mover. And especially when the will which hitherto willed evil begins to will good. And hence, inasmuch as God moves the human mind to this act, we speak of operating grace. Okay, so you see he's talking about conversion being an operating grace. But there is another exterior act, and since it is commanded by the will, the operation of this act is attributed to the will. And because God assists us in this act, both by strengthening our will interiorly so as to attain the act, and by granting outwardly the capability of acting, it is respect to this that we speak of cooperating grace. So he doesn't feel the need to say that the actual moment of conversion itself is a cooperating grace from God, right? He's talking about cooperating grace being when I do something external. So I'm converted interiorly, that's God operating on me. I then walk to the church to get baptized, then God's cooperating with me because I'm doing something exteriorly. So that's it. Yeah. <laughs>